And I'm excited this morning to be continuing in our series called Discover Christmas. And the way we're going to discover Christmas, we talked last week, is through the four words of Christmas. And those words are hope, peace, joy, and love. We're going to be unpacking those words. Last week, we looked at that first word of Christmas, hope, and we talked about how true and lasting Hope is only found in Jesus, how it's rooted in the promises of God and that as we lean into God's presence and power, that gospel-centered hope begins to produce in us the joy and peace of God. And this morning, we're going to look into the second word of Christmas, and that word is peace. Now remember, last week, we kind of gave the word peace a definition, and we said peace is the internal steadiness of the soul, right? It's not the absence of hardship. It's not the absence of struggle, but rather it's the internal steadiness, the internal settledness in our souls as we go through struggle and through hardship, right? That's what peace is. And now I want you to think about 2020. Hasn't this just been a peaceful year? It's just been so... See what I made my eyes do immediately, right? It's It's been crazy, right? Peace has been very elusive, this year. It has been one of the reasons why I've been so excited to get to the Christmas season because when we, when we get to Christmas, we get, it, it kind of helps us to create this sense of peace, right? We, we, it's in our music, it's in our decorations, it's in the parties, it's in the clothes that we wear. Christmas begins to help us create this sense of peace. Our Christmas cards will quote verses about it, will set up the nativity, and it's very serene in this peaceful scene, and we'll even try to make peace with those relatives that drive us crazy. I know your family doesn't got them. Mine's got one or two. And so um, we, we really try to infuse peace into this season. And even in the Christmas hymns that we sing, um, we sing about peace all season long. But here's the reality. We got to talk about a few of these songs because some of them are not right. And I'm going to blow one up this morning, and I hope it doesn't hurt your feelings. And we, we got to talk about the Christmas hymn, Away in a Manger. If, that, if that's anybody's favorite song, Buckle up. All right, here we go. There's a line in a way in a manger that I just can't handle, and it's this. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Now, we're going to talk about that for just a minute. How many of you have, have had a newborn baby? Just show of hands. Guys, if you raise your hand, come on. Now, you didn't have a newborn baby. You were around, but you know what it means have a newborn baby. What does every newborn baby in the history of newborn babies do when a newborn baby is woken up? What do they do? First thing, they cry. That's the first thing they do. Now imagine if what woke that newborn baby up was the mooing of a cow and a bunch of barn animals. There's going to be some crying, right? But what, what are we seeing about Jesus? Oh, he didn't cry. Yes, he did. Jesus cried. Jesus was a normal human baby, which means what? Jesus wasn't born potty trained and sleeping through the night. That's not how it worked. All right. Mary and Joseph changed diapers. They did the 2 a.m. feeding. They lost sleep because Jesus was a normal baby. He cried like every human child. So why do we sing that? Because it creates this facade of peace. There's another song that we sing, and I really love this hymn. It's called, uh, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Do you guys know that one? I heard the bells on Christmas Day, the old familiar carol play. Right? Mild and sweet, the song repeats of peace on earth and goodwill to men. 
That song is actually a poem that was written by a man named Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Now, let's just talk, first of all, about how awesome his name is, okay? His middle name is Wadsworth. I don't know what to do with that. It just sounds kind of cool. Henry Longfellow was uh, born in 1802, died around 1882-83, and um, he was probably the most famous poet of his day. He had been able, he was most famous for his poem, Paul Revere's Ride. That may be where you've maybe read that. Uh, Henry Longfellow wrote that. And Henry Longfellow was able to achieve something as a poet very few poets could achieve. One, he became famous while he was still alive. For poets, you don't usually get famous till after you're dead. He became famous while he was still alive. And unlike most poets, he was actually paid for his poetry. He made a living writing poetry. So he, he gained some notoriety and popularity. And he actually made a living writing poetry. And when you look at this poem, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, what you see is that the last line of every stanza in that poem ends with this, peace on earth, goodwill to men. The last line of every stanza ends with those words. And we love that. I love to sing those words. But when you look at Longfellow's life, when you look at the story of this hymn, What you discover is that he wrote this not during a season of peace, but actually during a season of great struggle and hardship and burden. Henry Longfellow wrote, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, on December 25th, Christmas morning of 1863. And here's the story behind that. Just two years before, in 1861, his wife had died. She she was uh, killed in in a house fire. She burned to death. And... In Henry Longfellow's attempt to save her and extinguish the flames, he himself was burned very, very badly, scarred him up all over his body. Matter of fact, he grew a beard to cover those scars. Um, Just a few years later, we have the Civil War break out, and uh, Henry Longfellow's 17-year-old son, whose name was Charles, uh, left home at 17, and unbeknownst to his father, went to join Lincoln's Union Army. And in the last week of November of 1863, Charles Longfellow was shot in the back. He survived, and they took him to a hospital in Washington, D.C., and word got back to his father that his son, his 17-year-old son, had been shot in the back in a battle and was in a hospital in D.C. Henry Longfellow immediately leaves to go to Washington, D.C., travels there to be with his son, and the moment he arrives at the hospital, a doctor tells him there's very little chance that his son will ever walk again and be paralyzed for the rest of his life. And it's in that season, in December of 1863, two years after the death of his wife, still bearing the fresh scars on his body of having been burned, And in the hospital with his son, who may never walk again, that on that Christmas morning at the hospital, he writes the hymn, I Heard the Bells, on Christmas Day. And what you find if you read all the lyrics of that poem is there are three stanzas that when it was first published, the publishers took out. They were like, "Mm, people don't want to, we're not going to include that, Henry. We don't want to put that in there. And the reason they took them out And the reason that when we normally sing this song, we don't sing those lines is because they don't reinforce this idea of peace. 
This is where Henry Longfellow was actually feeling honest things and was battling for peace. I want you to hear a couple of the lines from what was actually taken out of the original poem. He says this, Then from each black accursed mouth the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols were drowned of peace on earth and goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong, and it mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. It turns out that Christmas morning, Longfellow didn't find comfort in the sound of those church bells ringing across the city of Washington, D.C. They didn't bring him peace that day. And the truth is, the reality of this year for us... (laughs) The reality of what 2020 has been, the reality of the political strife and the social unrest and the blessing that we all get to have, a COVID Christmas, who's excited about that, right? The, the blessing of the, all of those things have seemed to rob, at least for me, some of the sense of, of sweetness and peace from the season, which means for us, church, It means that we will need more than the facade of Christmas. We're going to need more than the sweet sentiment of Christmas to experience the peace that we all need and that we all desire. We're going to need something real. I need something real. I need something I can rest in. We need a firm foundation for our hope and our peace. And what we're going to find is that foundation in God's Word this morning in Isaiah chapter 9. So why don't you grab your Bible and go with me there. Isaiah chapter 9. This is one of those passages that we love at Christmas. It's on our Christmas cards. We sing about it. Um, Does anybody ever listen to Handel's Messiah? There's a beautiful part in there that's written for these. For unto us a child is born. I love it. Um, I want to do something a little different as we read these two verses. We're going to put them on the screen, but I'm going to ask you to stand with me, if you'll stand. We're going to read them together. I want you to read out loud with me Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. If you'll just follow along with us on the screen, I think there's something unique about the people of God reading the Word of God together. Would you just read this with me? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Next verse, please. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You guys be seated. Don't you love that last line? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What we see declared in Isaiah chapter 9 is the eternal kingdom of the prince of peace. Isaiah is saying there is a, there is a kingdom coming. There's a prince of peace coming. And it's declared here in Isaiah chapter 9. But What gives Isaiah 9 context? What helps us understand the desperate need for this Prince of Peace to come? We actually see in Isaiah chapter 8. You see, in Isaiah chapter 8, the people of God were having a bit of a 2020 year themselves, right? They had begun to turn their heart away from God. 
They had begun to struggle in relationship with God. They had begun to turn their eyes and their attention on the gods of other nations and the gods of other people, and they had begun to seek wisdom in mediums and in the occult. And because of those things, it had begun to breed a resentment toward God, and they began to have anger with God, and they had turned their heart away from Him. And in God's righteous judgment of that sin, God said in Isaiah chapter 8, I'm going to allow the Assyrian army, this massive, brutal army, to invade the people of God, and they are going to throw you over. They're going to destroy your land. And in Isaiah, the last verse of Isaiah chapter 8 is verse 22. And here are the last words that the people of God hear as a result of their sin and the coming judgment from the Assyrian army. God says this, and they will look, who's they? The people of God. They're going to look to the earth, but what will they behold? But they will behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's where the people of God were. And then we step into Isaiah chapter 9. And in Isaiah chapter 9, God makes a promise. The promise is this. This thick darkness will not last forever. This judgment will not last forever. He promises that he is going to send one who will restore light and peace to his people. This isn't the sermon, but I just need you to hear this. If you are in darkness this morning, if you are in a season of darkness, it will not last forever. The God who made this promise is the God that says weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. I just want you to hear that. I don't know if that's for you. This is the God who said, I'm slow to anger, but I am abounding in steadfast love. If you're in a season of darkness, it will not last forever because the God of light and the God of peace has made you a promise. And he's made that same promise to his people. And so from Isaiah 8:22, the gloom of anguish, they're going to be thrust into thick darkness. We step into Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, the very next verse. And look at what God says. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, those two cities, Zebulun and Naphtali, were very poor, war-torn areas. They were down on the southern side of the nation in the area called Galilee. And the reason that's important is because when a nation would invade Israel, they would often invade from that area, which meant uh, Zephtali and Nebelun were the first cities that they would march through. And they were war-torn and they were poor. And they were always the first to be invaded and they were the last place the army would march back through on their way out. So these were very poor, they would be plundered, they would be burned. And God says, there's not going to be gloom for them in these cities. The glory, uh, he's made glorious the way by the sea, Galilee of the nations. And look at what he says in verse 2. Now remember, Isaiah 8.22 said they're going to be thrust into thick darkness. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. And the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. 
For you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Here's why. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For... Unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. And then I want us to, to jump in. And as we pray, I, I just, would you take just a few seconds here and in the quietness of your heart, would you just ask God to speak to you this morning? I pray for you every week that God would speak to your hearts, but I want you to just take a moment. Would you just ask God, God, would you open your word to me and would you speak to my heart today? And then I would ask that you would pray for me. Would you just pray that God would speak through me, that he would... uh, protect you uh, and protect my mind and my heart and my mouth and that he would just uh, allow his Holy Spirit to speak through his word this morning. Would you just pray that for us? God, you've heard our prayers and now we put ourselves before you and ask that you would come and move. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate and magnify your word? Would you cause the glory of your word to just shine in this place? And would you overwhelm your people with your presence? In Jesus' name, amen. Into Israel's darkness and chaos, God speaks a promise of peace. Isaiah prophesies of this perfect ruler who will reign forever over a peaceful kingdom. And this would be one who would finally be worthy of being followed. Because the promise is he is going to turn your gloom into glory. He's going to turn your darkness into light. He's going to turn your slavery and your burden and your oppression into freedom. And he's going to turn your unrest into peace. He makes a promise of one who's going to answer and be the answer to every failed attempt by humanity to provide this peace on our own. No government system in the history of humanity can give you this peace. No person. You know why sometimes I think this year has been such a struggle for us is because we are looking to people. We're looking to a person. We're looking to a government to give us what only God can give. And we got to get our eyes off of people and we got to get our eyes on the Prince of Peace. See, y'all got me sideways. I wasn't even going to preach that. 
Ephesians 2 chapter 14 says this, Christ himself is our peace. That's what, that's what God's word says. God's word doesn't just warn, it commands that we do not look to kings and rulers for our peace. We don't look to presidents and senates and congressional men and women, governors, mayors. We don't look to any of that. We look to the king of the kingdom, the prince of peace. And the more my eyes are trained on him, the deeper, more meaningful, and more enduring the peace in my life is. Not because my life isn't hard, but because I've got the king of the kingdom with me. Now back to what I was actually, what's that, what I've actually written down to say. So, if Jesus is the answer to every failed attempt by humanity to provide peace, if He's the one that can deliver, and the question I want us to spend our re the rest of our time answering this morning is this, how is Jesus our peace? And what is it about Him that establishes this kind of peace for us? And where, what is there in the person of Jesus that can invade our chaos to provide the steadiness and the settledness to our souls. There's three quick things I want you to, say, to see. Here's the first one. Our peace in Jesus begins in the nature of Jesus. It begins in the nature of Jesus. Look at verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. Isaiah is saying that the end of this war with Assyria, the end of this strife and this darkness for the people of God is going to depend on the coming of a person, a royal person, but he would not appear as royalty appears usually. He's not going to, meaning he, does, he isn't going to come and appear as a king, but rather he would come as a child. And the phrases that we see here that describe this child for us are incredibly important because they reveal the nature of who Jesus is. A child is born and a son is given. Not only would Jesus be God come to earth, but he would be God born on earth. This is speaking to both the human and the divine. This is saying that God is both, that Jesus is both God and man. The child born points to his humanity. What do I mean by that? Jesus was a human child. That's why those songs drive me crazy that act like he was never a normal baby. He did what normal babies do, right? He, he was, he was, Mary carried Jesus for nine months. She went into labor with Jesus. It wasn't awesome when he was born. It was probably very painful. And he wasn't born at Longview Regional. He was born in a barn with animals. That's where it all went down. So ladies, just want you to put yourself back in that, in that labor moment that you went through. But I want you to just let the hospital and the clean sheets and the painkillers fade away. And I want you to insert yourself into a funky barn with some cows and some donkeys. That's where I want you to just place yourself. Okay? You're not happy about it. That's where, that's where, they, that's where Jesus was born. It was real. He was a real human child. The child born speaks to his humanity. But listen to this. The son given speaks to his deity, to his godness. Yes, Jesus was fully man, but he was also fully God. He was the son given 
And if he was a son given, then who was the father who gave him? We know that to be Jehovah God, Yahweh, the eternal heavenly father, gave us his son. We see this all throughout God's word. Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus is baptized, he comes up out of the water. And what does God say out loud from heaven for everybody to hear? This is my beloved what? And I am well pleased in him. John chapter 3, verse 16, the most famous passage in the whole Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus is the son of God, but not only is he the son of God, he is the eternal fullness of God. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible is Colossians 1.19, because it says this, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Which means what? Everything that makes God, God dwells fully in the person of Jesus. What's the point of that? Because we can have real peace in this life of chaos because a child was born who knows what it is to be human. He knows your struggles. He knows your battle. He knows your hardship. And we can have peace because a son was given, because God came to us, Emmanuel, and he came to defeat our struggle and to give us deliverance out of the darkness. Our peace begins in the nature of Jesus, that he is both God and man. Here's the second thing. Our peace is sustained in the character of Jesus. It's sustained in the character of of Jesus. We see his nature. He's a child born. He's a son given. But what is then the character of this child and this son? We see it in the second part of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Once again, we see a place in God's word, just like we saw last week in Romans chapter 15. We see a place in God's word where as God is telling us what he will do for us and how he will uh, provide peace for us, and he's telling us what he's going to give us, he is doing that and building that on who he is for us. This is the character of Jesus. This is to me, this is the first peek behind the curtain of what God meant when he said uh, in, in the book of Philippians that I'm going to give him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why is the name of Jesus the name above every name? We can begin to see it here in Isaiah 9 because in the name of Jesus is the fullness of the wonderful counselor and the fullness of the mighty God and the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace because that is the character of Jesus. That name is the name that is above every name. And listen to me, church, the endurance and the perseverance of our peace is intrinsically linked. It hinges on the name and the character of Christ. So I want to look at those four names. I want to look at that. Let's look at those Beautiful descriptions of who Jesus is. It says he's a wonderful counselor. Literally translated from the original Hebrew, it means wonder of a counselor. <laughs> I love that. 
God is revealing to us that this ruler's counsel is going to transcend mere human wisdom. He will have no need of human counselors to guide him or to instruct him. Church, listen to me. Wisdom that is going to bring us true peace has to be more than the best humanity has to offer. Wisdom that is going to, be, that is going to bring you true peace in your life has to be more than the best humanity has to offer. See, I've brought the best humanity has to offer to some of the struggles in my life, and you know what happened? They just stayed struggles. I've brought the wisdom of friends. I've brought the wisdom of superiors. I've brought, I've brought my own wisdom. And sometimes they help a little, but what delivers true and lasting peace is more than the best of humanity. It is divine. It is the wonder of a counselor, the wonderful counselor. Here's why. Because the wisdom of humanity and the wisdom of God, not the same thing. Are you with me? His ways are higher than our ways, right? His word says his thoughts are higher than I thought, than, than our thoughts. Human wisdom says that weakness has to be hidden and it has to be covered. But Jesus says no strength lies in weakness. Human wisdom says that victory comes through dominance. And Jesus says that victory lies in surrender. Human wisdom says that this life is all about what you get. And Jesus says this life is only found in dying to yourself. We need the wisdom of the wonderful counselor. Then he says he's the mighty God. This is to say that, the, that Jesus possesses all the power of God. So what we've got here is a mingling of the natural and the supernatural. Here's what I mean. The word mighty was a very common word that they would use, but it was often used to describe the power of a victorious warrior. So they would use this word to describe a general or a warrior who, who could win the battle just based on the power of their military skill and their military uh, might. So it was a common word, but it expressed great power. And the word translated for God is the word El. It's the most common name for God in all of the Hebrew Bible. And when you take them together, what you find is this, mean, this mingling of the natural, mighty, and the supernatural God so that um, what you have is this picture that is painted for us of the omnipotent, powerful warrior who fights for us. When he says mighty God, I want you to hear this. Jesus is the all-powerful warrior who is fighting for you. That's, that's how we receive that. He's the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty, powerful warrior God who fights for us. And then it says, he's the everlasting father. Now, this one's a little bit interesting. Literally translated, this, this, this reads, the father of eternity, some very ancient writings uh, translated as the father of the everlasting age or the one abiding forever. And the reason I think it's interesting is because ascribing fatherhood to Jesus is a bit unusual. We don't normally do that. We reserve that title for God the Father. But this isn't a reference to God the Father. This is a prophecy about God the Son coming. So how do we reconcile that? And I think God is it promising that um, like a good father, 
Jesus is going to provide fatherly love and protection and provision and care for those in his kingdom. His point is this. Jesus has done what good fathers do, and he has made a way for the children to come to the table. That's the everlasting father. Jesus has made a way for you and I who are outside the family to come to the table. That's what a good father does. And Jesus did that. And then it says he is the prince of peace. This is the very thing that no king, no conqueror, no president can provide. This teaches us that Jesus is the source of our peace. And the peace he is going to give is the peace we need most. You see, I will believe the lie that the peace I need most is the peace in relationships. Or the peace I need most is the peace that I feel like I need in my workplace or in my finances. If I can just get some peace in this situation, it'll be fine. That'll be all I need. But the reality is the peace I need most is peace between me and God. Because as peace between me and God comes into place, then peace in all these other situations can find their place. And listen to what God's Roman, uh, word says in Romans 5, 1. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Prince of Peace has done. He came first to restore that peace. I love what Pastor Ray Ortland said about these names of Jesus. As I read it this week, I just wanted you to see it. Look at this. It says, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. The power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and all the big shots of this world that he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. His answer to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. Look at Jesus. As the wonderful counselor, he, is the, he has the best ideas and strategies, so let's follow him. As the mighty God, he defeats his enemies easily, so let's hide behind him. As the everlasting father, he loves us endlessly, so let's enjoy him. And as the prince of peace, he reconciles us while we are still his enemies. Let's welcome his dominion. Church, our peace is sustained in the character of Jesus. Here's the last thing I want you to see. That our peace in Jesus is guaranteed in the kingdom of Jesus. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we are guaranteed divine peace. What do I mean? Look at verse 9. Excuse me, look at verse 7 of Isaiah 9. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The kingdom of God is an ever-expanding place of eternal peace where he will reign in justice and righteousness forever. Now, how do most kings expand their kingdom? How do they do it? Through war, right? Through conquering, through overtaking. But how does Jesus expand his kingdom? Isaiah said he expands it through justice and righteousness. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8 says it like this. Your throne, O God, your kingdom is forever and ever. And the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And of the words, our perfectly righteous king guarantees our peace through his perfect 
justice, and righteousness. So for us, it means this. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we are guaranteed peace, but it isn't because the citizens are righteous. It's because the king of the kingdom is righteous. The peace that we're guaranteed in the kingdom of God isn't about what we've earned. It's just about who he is. And it is guaranteed in the kingdom of God. And what is the guarantee? What is it that's going to guarantee this promise of peace? It's the last line. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I love that word zeal. It it, it speaks to power and passion and desire and determination. The guarantee for our peace is not our wisdom or our success or our ability to create a life that is uh, free from struggle. The guarantee of our peace is found in the zeal of the Lord of hosts. So that God's zeal for his glory and the glory for his son is the guarantee of our peace. God's zeal for our good is the guarantee of our peace. God's zeal to defeat our enemy and the darkness and the chaos that our enemy brings into our life is the guarantee of this peace. God's zeal for the expansion of his kingdom and that all should come to salvation is the guarantee for this peace. And no power in heaven and on earth and under the earth can stand against the zeal of the Lord of hosts. Our peace is guaranteed in the kingdom of Jesus. Matt, that sounds great. That's just wonderful. I love those words, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. I I understand what you're saying, that peace comes through the nature of Jesus. He's God and man. It's, uh, It's sustained in his character, who he is. It's promised, it's guaranteed because I'm a citizen of the kingdom. How do I make that practical right now? How do I practically accept and walk in the peace that, I, that you're saying is mine in Jesus? I want to give you some personal, how do I apply this? The peace Jesus gives, here's the first application. The peace Jesus gives meets us in the middle of our brokenness. You remember those cities that I named at the beginning that Isaiah put in 9, chapter 1, verse 1? Naphtali, Zebulun, and those, those war-torn, poor cities, perpetually devastated. When the army would finally leave, they would begin the process of rebuilding. And as their city kind of reached a place of rebuilding, which took years and years and years, there would often be another army marching through to burn it all down again. That whole area is called Galilee, and guess what is also in that area of Galilee that was often marched through and plundered and burned? Bethlehem. What does it say about God that that is where he sends Jesus first? It says Jesus wants to meet us in the middle of our brokenness. It says Jesus came for the broken. He came for those of us who were busted up. He came for those of us who have been bloodied by life. It means that if you are struggling, if you are carrying burdens, if you are worn out from the chaos, Jesus came for you and he's going to meet you there. Here's the other thing it means. The peace of Jesus 
The peace that Jesus gives is not something we obtain by effort, but receive by grace. Through Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 5, God makes clear that this is a gift of grace. This peace is something he's going to give. He reminds them he's going to be the one that's going to shine the light into the darkness. He's going to be the one that increases their joy. He's going to be the one that destroys the yoke of burden. He's going to be the one that breaks the rod of their oppressor. He's going to bring the one, he's going to be the one that brings an end to war. This kind of peace we cannot manufacture, we cannot earn, and we cannot achieve. It is a gift of grace to those who have put their faith in the Prince of Peace. Have you done that? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Have you made the Prince of Peace the King of your heart? That's where this peace comes from. And the last thing I want you to see is that we have this peace from Jesus while we are living in the space between two advents. We're living in the space between two advents. What do I mean? Um, the great victory that has been won for us and this great kingdom that has been established is what we would call an already but not yet kingdom. You go, Matt, that, makes, that sounds like jumbo shrimp. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. It's an already but not yet. Come on, man. That's like, feels like bologna and orange juice in my mouth at the same time. That just don't feel right. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, you ever feel like you got squirrels juggling knives in your head? It's an already but a not yet kingdom, meaning this. We've had the first advent, and in the first advent, a kingdom was established. And already, God has sent the one who, through the cross, has made peace for us. Isaiah 53 said he took up our infirmity. He carried our, I need somebody to carry my sorrow. Jesus carried our sorrow. Yet, what did we think? We considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But in grace, while we were still calling him smitten, stricken by God, he was pierced for our transgression and he was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And through his wounds, we are healed. That's the already. He has already done that for us. In his death, he has defeated sin. And in his, in his resurrection, he has defeated death. And he has overthrown the power of darkness. We have that victory right now. That is an already. But the not yet is that because we know there will be a second advent, do you believe Jesus is coming again? If you believe that, then you believe there is going to be a second coming. There's going to be a second advent. And in the second coming, it won't be like the first. He's not coming as a baby the second time. He is coming as a ruling and reigning king. And in that second coming will be the full consummation of his kingdom. So while we wait for his kingdom and his peace to be fully accomplished, we wait knowing this, that the greatest peace we need has already been established in his first advent. And as we rest in that peace, as we pursue that peace, as we hope in that peace, it makes us long even more and more and more for the second advent. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I want you to hear how Henry Longfellow ended his poem, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Remember where he was? Chaos, struggle, burden, hardship, death of his wife, scars on his face, son paralyzed, 
He writes those verses there. He said, it doesn't feel like there's any peace at all. But this is the last stanza of that poem. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, and the right prevail through peace on earth and goodwill to men. Are you experiencing the peace of Jesus in your life? Let me ask that a different way. Where do you need the peace of Jesus to invade your life? Where do you need it? Where do you need the wonderful counselor to come and just give you wisdom that's better than anything you've been able to think of so far? Where do you need the mighty God, the omnipotent warrior who is warring for you? What's the enemy you need him to go and defeat? Where do you need the everlasting father, the one who is going to just lay for you the banquet and like a good father, invite you into the feast? Where do you need the Prince of Peace? This morning we're going to take communion together. But before we do that, I want us to have a few moments where we prepare our, our hearts because the truth is, I believe there's someone in this room who has not made Jesus the Lord of your, your life and you need the Prince of Peace. And so we're going to sing this great hymn called Nothing But the Blood. There's this line in the hymn that says, this is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And Philip's just going to sing that over us. And here's what I'm going to invite you to do. You're welcome while he sings to stand and sing with him. You're welcome to sit and pray and prepare your heart to receive communion. If you have not made Jesus the Lord of your life, some of our staff are going to be down here on the front row, and I just want you to get up from where you are and come sit beside them and say, I need the Prince of Peace. Some of you have just burden and struggle. You need to lay down sin. You need to confess. I love taking communion, and God's Word tells us that we can't take this in an unworthy manner. We take it very thoughtfully. We take it very seriously. This is for anyone who has made Jesus the Lord of your life. And so we're going to need these little communion cups that you got when you came in. If you didn't get one of those and you want to participate in communion, would you just slip your hand up? We've got a few folks who can bring you one right now. We've got some right up here. Just if you'll hold your hand up, we'll get you a communion cup. A couple right here. Anybody else need one? So Philip's going to sing and we're going to worship. And my prayer is that you will just use this time to prepare your heart. If you need to pray with one of our staff, you come right down and sit beside us here on the front row and we'll pray together. Lord, over the next few minutes, would you just be glorified in our worship? Would you be lifted up? Would you remind us of the treasure that is your blood and the sacrifice and the wounds that you received, God, that became our peace? Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.